This morning we're looking at um, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And the reason for this is we've been uh, actually preaching through uh, the Apostle Paul's letters to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. We've made a lot of references to the fact that in the New Testament, this church is actually addressed more frequently than any other church in the New Testament. You have the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 20 to the end of the chapter, uh, speaking to uh, the church at Ephesus through the elders of the church there, when Paul calls them to the port city of Miletus to give them his last farewell address. And then, of course, there's the letter itself to the book of, of, the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. And so you have those six chapters. But then you have First and Second Timothy, uh, which are directed to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and through him, through the rest of the eldership and the deacons uh, and the church family. And then finally, the very last message to the church at Ephesus that we have in a canonical fashion is here in the book of Revelation. It is the first and initial uh, lesson or letter of the seven letters that Jesus uh, speaks in that prophetic work. So here are these words then, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel at the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Our Father, this, this passage, these words from your Son, are somber, serious. Help us to attend to them in a solemn fashion, in such a manner that we take the words of Christ seriously, in such a manner that we would transcend the way we consider ourselves. Father, so often we take ourselves too seriously. And you, and the work of your Son, and your words to us about the life we are to live in Christ without the proper seriousness that they require. And yet, Almighty God, your word to us is always enveloped in saving grace. Uh, you do not speak to us as Christians 
except you speak for our good. And in speaking for our good, working in us that which will bring glory to the name of Christ. This is what we would pray for this morning. Give us ears to hear what Jesus through the Spirit says to the church. In his name, amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is uh, Renewing Our First Love for Christ. We need to set the, the concerns that Jesus expresses here into a larger picture of what is basic and fundamental to the Christian faith. The relationship between truth and love is a moral absolute. And this is because the very nature of God makes this necessary. God is truth and God is love. That means that the way of following Christ must always hold these two characteristics together. We have to hold the nature of God in terms of truth and the nature of God in terms of love always together, to see them always resident together in the very nature of Christ in both his humanity and in his deity, and to recognize that, that in our Redeemer, these two things, love and truth, are never opposed to one another, and they are never, ever to be separated. Now, this is true also, especially in the life of a Christian. We must never, ever think that truth and love are ever actually opposed to one another. Now, that takes on even a greater significance for the life of the whole church in such a way to say that as the church functions in the world, it must never in any sense separate what God has joined together. And it must never elevate one over the other that God has made eternally and permanently and concretely equal God's truth and God's love. Churches which do separate these two things. Churches which, which do not keep them in balanced are disfigured churches. They're out of whack, biblically. The word whack is an important theological concept. <laughs> but churches have done this. If you were to look at the last 150 years of American Christianity, we can see this. Liberal Christianity, at the end of the 19th century, made a conscious decision to prioritize what it thought love was over what it thought truth was. Because the church at that time was essentially saying, in America, mainline denominations, ah, theologians are always going to be arguing over the truth of Scripture. They're always going to be uh, wrestling with what is the truth. Uh, all of this, this is happening. But we may, not dis, we may not be able to agree upon the truth, but we could always agree upon what love is. And so the church, as it began to move in this direction that historically has been called liberal Christianity, began to consider God's truth as it was revealed to us as something that is quite elastic, but the idea of love as that which is the absolute. And therefore the church said, our mission is not to, 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 to argue over doctrine, 
Give every man the freedom to believe what he thinks his conscience should dictate in terms of the truth, but we all must be united on the works of love. We must. And the church moved in that direction. And that love meant we need to help oppressed and poor human beings. We need to bring the benefits of the kingdom of God to those who are the marginalized of society. And that's the direction the church went. Now, in response to this, conservative Christianity reacted uh, as liberalism gained power and popularity to say, we need to bear down very strongly in a fight to preserve and to keep the truth. We must. Now, in that sense, the fundamental, the conservative, the evangelical church made the right decision. That is to say, they needed to bear down strongly on the truth. But as the last 150 years have shown, in this fight for the truth, the biblical ministry of love got neglected. But worse, often the faithfulness of a conservative church was measured by its doctrine alone. Sometimes the prevailing ministry philosophy was something like this. You can have one or you can have the other. But it's too difficult to have both. And it's better to err on the side of truth than it is on the side of love. Because as the decades have rolled by since the late 19th century, uh, the kind of love that's espoused within our culture, the kind of love that's especially espoused within the liberal churches, is that squishy kind of love. That love that actually is just what people feel. That love is that which the heart directs, that the heart can never be wrong about. Now, the kind of love that says in the end, love wins. And, and love is what you have the right to do. And you should do, no matter who it is, whatever. Squishy, kind of, amorphous, kind of, fits any kind of situation love. But when we come to the letter here of Jesus to the church at Ephesus, we can see that this kind of division between truth and love isn't right and it isn't new. Here in the church at Ephesus, the unity between truth and love has been disrupted. That broken relationship between truth and love, it's happened. In order to set the church back on its proper foundation and its proper footing, Jesus has to come and Jesus has to speak to the church in this way. And there's an application to us then today. That is, the application is, we must keep from falling into the Ephesian error. Both personally and as a church. And so we need to see within this message, this major theme. Because our first love toward Christ is our first priority, we must keep Christ first each day in all of the concerns of life, rejecting anything that would move us away and refreshing ourselves in his love as that which motivates us to love him more. In other words, 
You cannot love Christ without loving his truth, and you cannot really love his truth without loving him, but it all begins with holding on to our love for Christ, toward Christ, as of first importance. So with respect to the letter of Christ to the church at Ephesus, we can see three things that we need to be concerned about. Love as central, which means love that is alive. And then, the reason why Jesus had to speak to the church, love as abandoned, love that had become dead. But then, in terms of his rebuke, Love rediscovered. Love that is resurrected. That's what I want us to consider. As we finish up and wrap up my personal ministry of the word with respect to preaching and teaching and giving the last of what I understand Jesus to be saying to the church at Ephesus. Now the first thing that we we need to understand, to put this in a proper background and context, is the centrality of love, love that is actually alive. See, the big point that Jesus is making in his letter to the church at Ephesus is that they have fallen away from their first love. And yet we know from the New Testament that no church received more teaching about love than the church at Ephesus with possibly the church at Corinthians because of 1 Corinthians 13. But the theme of love is strongly pronounced all the way through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. For instance, a brief survey uh, would give us these teachings. Chapter 1, verse 5. In love, he predestined us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, even a passage which um, uh, Elder Michael Hudson has been quoting this morning. But being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Or chapter 2, verse 15, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints chapter 3, 16 to 19, which we have read in the service today, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Chapter 5, verse 25, 28, 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then the benediction at the end of the book of Ephesians. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Now, two remarks. Notice, the Apostle Paul cannot think about the doctrines of grace. The Apostle Paul cannot write about the doctrines of grace. He can't talk about, he can't write about, he can't think about the person and work of Christ unless he writes about the love of God and the love of Christ. Because it is the love of God that is at the very heart of salvation and grace The doctrines of saving grace and love are necessarily intertwined. And that is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter chapter 1, verse 5 said, for the, the, the goal of our charge is love. Now that word charge there also means instructions. And so the NIV says, the goal of our instruction is love. That's the objective. We teach in order that you may love. The inseparable connection between the doctrines that are true and the calling to love. So if sound doctrine is taught, but it does not lead to the people of God loving Christ more, then we are under the condemnation that the apostle expresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are, in fact, sounding gongs and noisy symbols, or noisy gongs and clanging symbols. Whatever, it's bad. The point is this. If our knowledge of the teaching of God's word do not lead us to be more set upon loving Christ more and loving his people more, then we're personally out of whack. We are spiritually unbalanced. We are not growing. Understand, it's not just that you're not growing as Christ wants you to grow. You're not growing. You are at a spiritual standstill. And you may be drifting. In serious ways, you may be drifting from the faith you profess if you're not growing in love and growing the way that Christ wants you to grow. The second point, this theme of love. God's love to the lost world. God's love to his people. God's people loving Christ. God's people loving each other. God's people loving a lost world. The church at Ephesus had all of that in terms of the teachings that they got from the Apostle Paul and that they got from Timothy. They got all of that. Yet, this church 
That church at Ephesus became unbalanced. They became spiritually out of whack. The relationship between truth and love deeply suffered. If that can happen to that church, founded by Paul, pastored by Timothy, it is a danger to any church and to every church. And therefore, we must keep our hearts set on seeing love as central and doing all to make sure that the genuine love we have would stay genuine and stay alive. Now, moving further into what, what Jesus says here, we see love as abandoned, which really is love that is dead. Look what Jesus says in, in verse 4. I have this against you. You have abandoned your love. Your first love. Now, think about the seriousness of this concern. It's much more than just a criticism. It is as close a statement to condemnation as you can actually have a Christian ever being condemned because we know doctrinally that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is not here a condemnation of that sort, the condemnation of the world. But there is clearly such a strong rebuke from Christ with respect to his people, that it sounds like a condemnation. It is a serious accusation, and it is seriously true. And it is even more serious when we understand all the ways and the things for which Jesus praises this church. He praises this church, first of all, in verse 2, for their works, for their toil, for their patient endurance. Also in verse 2, they cannot bear with those who are evil. And Jesus specifically specifies the false apostles. Uh, this is very much like what Jesus said, or Paul said in Acts chapter 20, that, that after Paul left, savage wolves would arrive from within the midst of the church to uh, basically take away those who, well people who are going to be apostate who are going to fall away to lead others after them. Paul had warned that the church would be infiltrated, and we see here that the church had been resisting that infiltration properly, and, and Jesus commends them for it. And then when you look at verse 6, they hated the Nicolaitans. Uh, the church hated their works, their idolatry, their sexual immorality, even as Jesus hated that. So we see that on the plus side of things, on the side of commendations, the church had a zero tolerance for false teachings. They had a zero tolerance for immoral living, which in many ways says that the church was living up to what Paul had said in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, when Paul says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
So the church had zero tolerance for these things that were bad, and the, and the church was properly listening to and not being deceived by those who would say, uh, you know, I'm saved by the cross. Oh, blessed condition. I can sin as I please, but still have remission. No, that, that false kind of gospel was something they rejected. You are not only saved from the penalty of sin, you're saved from the power of sin. You are saved in such a way that you must depart from sin even as because of the work of Christ, sin departs from you. The unity always between genuine salvation, a saving faith, and a life that changes and a life that follows Christ. They had zero tolerance for those things that would weaken the gospel doctrinally in that way. They're also commended in all of this for bearing up faithfully to the name of Christ in a major city of the Roman Empire, in the Greco-Roman world, where there were cultural and political and religious forces constantly opposing the church. They had stood firm. They had not grown weary. They had been patient in the face of inner attacks and outer attacks. Yet, as good as this looks, as praiseworthy as all of these things were, Jesus was not pleased. In spite of all the good that Jesus could declare about this church, there was something still terribly wrong. The church had lost, abandoned, its first love for Christ. While the church stood firm on all the issues of truth, both doctrinally and even morally, in some manner, Jesus never specifies, but in some manner, the church had lost its vital love for their Redeemer. It had lost the virtue of love as its all-sufficient motivating factor to worship God and to live the godly life. Jesus says that love is dead. And Jesus accuses them, comes close to condemning them for this. Very clearly, as much as any Christian can be actually condemned by Jesus, they're being condemned for this. Not like a judge condemns a criminal, but like a father would condemn and be disappointed for a son. What does that tell us? No matter how pure our doctrine may be, no matter how spotless our morality may be, if we do not have love, we are nothing. It's the sad sound of 1 Corinthians 13. The noisy gong, the clanging cymbal. The charge against the church is so strong that Jesus threatens to remove the lampstand. He threatens to remove their testimony to Christ in the world. So, thinking about that, listen carefully to the implication. Jesus would rather have a church come to its end than to continue with a love that has died. Jesus would rather have a church expire 
and its address and its place and its presence disappear than to have that same entity continue as a loveless and therefore a genuinely lifeless, doctrinally pure church. We're not talking about ever the church embracing the false dichotomy. Either we are doctrinally pure church or we are happy, loving church. Christ is saying the only thing that pleases him is the both and. We are everything we need to be in terms of doctrinal fidelity. We are everything we need to be in terms of loving Christ above all else. Nothing less. Because ultimately there's nothing more. So we're not told the reasons of the process by which the church lost its first love which might mean that there might be a multitude of ways and a multitude of cultures and a multiple of of generations and times that this could happen. All we are told, then, is what the church needed to do. We're told the response that Christ was demanding, which then brings us to our final point. Love rediscovered, love resurrected. What Jesus says in verse 5 is this, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So his message at this station of of the message, his message within the message at at this point is this. Three things. Remember, repent, redo. Remember from where you have fallen. But where had the church been? If you look at the end of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 24, if you look at the benediction, Paul is pronouncing the blessing upon the church that was already like this and experiencing this blessing. Because he says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus with an incorruptible love, with a love that is incorruptible. Or as the NIV would say, with an undying love. That's where they had been. They had loved Jesus with an undying love, but their undying love had died. They had loved Jesus with an incorruptible love, but that incorruptible love had been corrupted, abandoned died. What was supposed to be ever undying had died. We're not sure why. But we can reflect upon our own era, our own age. We can look at the pressures of the world about us. And and we can see things in our own culture that may be different from the culture then. There's never a a distinct dissimilarity. There's always going to be analogies and parallels. How often do we spend time in entertainment that may not be bad entertainment, but 
it might have been better spent. According to Ephesians 5.15, redeem the time because the days are evil. So even our desire to just sort of step back, undo the stresses of the world by relaxation and recreation and watching the old series that were safe that you could watch, the Dick Van Dyke show or something like that. We don't know why the church lost its first love, but we all can see the kinds of things that can cause us to drift. Their love had withered. The church now lacked a fervent devotion to Christ. They were still the doctrinal church of the day. But they no longer loved the Lord Jesus with an undying love. The kind of love they needed to remember was what Paul had said in chapter 3, 17 through 19, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's where they had been. That's how they had been blessed. That's what they were experiencing. And that's the first love that must be remembered. Jesus also says, repent. In this one word, Jesus tells us that whatever is in the way must go. Whatever stands in the way of our loving Christ first and foremost must go. It's a command. But in every command that we're given by Christ, there's also the grace to work toward fulfilling it. But the word repent says right now. Something to be done immediately. And it's the kind of word that essentially says, turn around now. It's not the kind of word that invites you to consider a 12-step process to remembering and redoing the things you did at first. It's not encouraging you to have some kind of slow and careful process of turning around. It's now. It's sharp. It's strong. It's necessary. You don't tell a thief, I want you to stop stealing. I'm going to put you in a 12-step program that teaches you thieves how to first admit you're a thief. Come to meetings where you can all say, Hi, my name is Randy and I'm a thief. And then find a sponsor. And that sponsor can help you when you're tempted to be... And if you fall and you steal some more, that's okay. Come back to the group and we're going to keep working on this. Now, I'm not saying that those kinds of ministries are not in some sense necessary. But don't confuse that kind of working upon our sinful natures and the things that we need to to work on as repentance. 
in the sense of what Jesus says, repentance requires a genuine decision. I must let go of anything that stands in the way of what I'm doing or that stands in the way of my loving Christ. It's a turnaround. It's not a process. It's an immediate turning around. Where there's such a command, the Lord Jesus promises his grace to enable us to do so. Redo. Jesus calls the church to redo, to do again the works it did at first. To rediscover those works that were works of genuine love towards Christ, works of worship, works of praise, works of fellowship and service within the body of Christ, those works of what it means to walk with Christ every day. There is one passage in all of the New Testament that I have returned to again and again that has taught me, as it were, through a picture, a story of something that actually happened, but it has taught me How must I be, what must I do in order not to lose my first love for Christ? It's in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. It's a story that has several distinct applications. It's a story about Jesus visiting the home of Martha and what happens with Martha's sister, Mary. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Here's what I want you to understand out of this passage. No one ever loses his or her first love for Christ who sits at the feet of Christ every day. You will never lose your first love if you sit at the feet of Jesus every day. If you choose in the midst of the busy, busy, busyness of the world to put Christ first, to sit with Christ first, to read his precious words to you first, to commune with him in prayer, to talk with him, to to open up the brokenness of your heart to him. 
if Christ is pursued as your first love every day, then you will never be in danger of abandoning your first love. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Our God and Father, please grant to us such a heart that we would love your Son truly with an incorruptible and undying love. And that love would work in us the constant and daily desire and action of sitting at his feet, listening to him, reminding ourselves that in the busyness of life, Jesus said to Martha that Mary had chosen the good portion, the good part, and it would not be taken away from her. Oh, Lord Jesus, enable us to live out all of our days, each one of them, every one of them, with you. Be glorified in it, we pray. In your name, amen.